Hey, welcome uh, to worship with us this morning with Redemption. If this is your first time, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I do most of the teaching. However, today um, I will not be teaching. We'll be taking a break from our series in Romans, and we'll get a chance to hear from a good friend of mine, which I'll talk to you more about uh, in just a second. Uh, but let me give you a couple announcements before we, we get into it. Uh, first is we, for the past several months, have been starting and cultivating and growing our ministry for foster care and adoption with Redemption. And there's several other churches within the Valley that are partnering in this effort with us to, to see the foster care system in our state, particularly in Maricopa County, be emptied, as well as training and equipping people to adopt, and also those who may want to adopt but definitely want to get into this issue and want to help. And so there is an orientation, um, if you direct your eyes to the screen here, that's coming up on April 1st from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., and the location is Redemption Arcadia. Uh, Arcadia is a congregation we have that's in the East Phoenix area, um, and so the address is there. And then for more information, you can go ahead and email that address there. If you forget about this, please go to redemptionaz.com. That's our website. If you've never been there, take some time to go ahead and navigate yourself through that. Um, you'll be able to learn some more about some things we have going on. So if you want to adopt, if you're interested in hearing more about it, if you want to serve and think of creative ways to help the families that are adopting or at least um, pro processing their way through the foster care system, um, go to this meeting. Again, it's two hours, April 1st um, at the Redemption Arcadia. The second thing is we have been in this season of prayer, right, for 40 days. In 40 days, we're asking the congregation to pray one hour a day and then fast one day a week. And there's been different ways in which I've been hearing people talk about how they are praying. And there's been many of us who are going, I just struggle with prayer. Um, I struggle. I'd rather read a book. I'd rather do something else to fall asleep. I'd rather do something else than pray. Or when I pray, I fall asleep. Um, I don't know if that's the spirit or, or <laughs> me, right? And so what we have for you this afternoon um, some of you have already signed up for it, but this afternoon there's a class at 5 p.m., so you can come back later today. No need to sign up. If you have kids, you can check them into Children's Ministry. And Jim Mullins will be teaching a class in which he will be helping us grow in our understanding and also application of prayer that we have that's spontaneous and then also intentional or structured prayer. Uh, so prayers that just happen as we just pray off the cuff and then times in which we set aside and allow, um, Jim's going to be teaching us and giving us tools to help grow in prayer. So if you want to come back for that, again, that's 5 p.m. Um, a couple stories I do want to share as we've been in this season. It's been really cool um, hearing not only the fact that we are praying, but God answering prayers. And so let me just share a few stories because they've just been rocking me. Is last week we had an opportunity in our service, which we'll do again today and have a different prayer um, after the message, to sit and to write down on those information cards names of people that you all know that don't know Christ. And it was unbelievable. We had over 1,500 names. We, we asked you to name one. Most of you had your entire family. And we knew because it was all the same last name. It's like, and they haven't had a kid yet, but when they do, <laughs> pray for them too, right? It was amazing. It was amazing. It was amazing. Here's what was amazing about it. We took all those names, and on Tuesday in our elder meeting, we spent about an hour and a half. We, we divid, uh, divided them out, gave them to different uh, of our pastors and elders, and we prayed for them each by name. It may have been the most incredible moment of prayer I may have ever had in my ministry, ever. And mainly because you know there's people that know, know Jesus in, in here. I know that there are people in this room who are going, that's me. I don't, I don't know Jesus, and we're glad that you're here. But it's one thing to know that people are there, but it's another thing to know these are people that you know and that you love. These are people that you all work with. These are our friends. These are our family. And just to feel the weight and the opportunity of how God is working, and we pray that would work through our gospel presentation. And so here's what I'd encourage you. Those names you wrote down, many of them, they live out of state. Um, and so inviting them here on Easter might be rough, though. If they come, that's fine, too. Um, but Easter is just one of those Sundays that most people who don't normally go to church, they may come on that. Or they may come next week. But continue to pursue them, not only in prayer, but also um, in relationships. The second story is that one of our redemption communities uh, will begin to pray throughout the city. And on the news the other night, they interviewed people from redemption. Because they were looking at uh, the, the St. Patrick's Festival that's happening here in Tempe where everyone gets together to remember this really godly man by getting drunk. So, but anyways, that's something they're doing here. 
and um, there's going to be this hate crime. They said they've heard of news of this hate crime that's going to be happening there. And so the guy who's talking about it on Channel 3 News goes, and we, we interviewed some people, and they had one gal from our church, and they said, these people are here praying. And they're praying for God's presence in the city and so kind of praying against things like this. And they put a mic in front of our people and they did a great job, right? Aren't you nervous sometimes when they put a mic in front of a Christian? You're like, don't. Oh, okay, yeah, yes, 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 that's it. That's right. We are not weird. That's good, right? And it was, it was a blessing. And um, the last one is a personal story. So I have these neighbors in, in, my, uh, in my neighborhood, right? And so um, kind of redundant, but... And I just said, Lord, I want to be able to build a relationship with my neighbors. I just want to be able to know them, and I want to be able to somehow build some friendship. No joke. The next day, I'm outside schooling my older son in basketball, and then the, the guy across the street comes over, brings his kids. We're about the same age. We start talking. Um, we connect because we realize our neighbor's yard has been kind of getting crazy, and she never leaves it that way. And we find out she had passed away. And so we begin talking like, man, what do we need to do to help her with her yard? The, the next day, so that's a different neighbor. The next day, my next-door neighbor, who I've really been praying, God, I really want to connect with him, he comes over. I'm outside again schooling my kid in basketball in the front yard, and, and he comes over and he goes, hey, man, you know what? I want to hang out with you. I look up to the Lord, and I was like, all right? And so he's like, I'm going to throw a barbecue. Let's invite our neighbors, and we'll hang out. So yesterday, I'm at his house with a multiple, you know, multiple four or five of our neighbors at his house, eating his barbecue, cost me nothing, and, and just building relationship. And I'm saying, okay, Lord, that, that right there is awesome. And, and just, you just see God's favor upon us in that. And so anyways, I want to share those stories. One, to encourage you, pray for anything uh, and pray for God's blessing to continue to pour out upon us. And so we're just excited about that and what God by his spirit is doing in us. What I want to be able to do is transition now to our all of life interview before I bring Eric up. Um, the next guy who I'm bringing up, not like I brought any other guys up today, but this next guy that I'm bringing up is a good friend of mine. Um, Eric and I met several years ago when I was wrestling through, honestly, the thought of being an African-American leading a predominantly white church. What would that look like? And he himself has been in the same situations I've been. He's planted multicultural churches. He himself is a social activist um, laboring in, in the inner city in Portland as well as working at a predominantly white church um, himself. He's pursuing his doctorate right now in cultural understanding, and he is the director of a church planning network called Waterhouse, in which we are affiliated with, and the conference is here in Phoenix. And so I've asked him to come and teach. Um, great friend of mine, good dude. So would you guys put your hands together for Eric Knox? going on sir what's going on so Eric tried to do me I dressed like I was working at Target today <laughs> and he wore the bow tie and everyone was like when's your bow tie coming out and I'm like well Eric's a lot older than I am and so when I when I get to that point I'll be able to do it so hey I didn't tell you this last service we do these things as all of life yeah. interviews where we bring people into vocation yeah. ministries and so forth and so that's what you're a part of we, we usually don't just bring people up just to interview them uh, just because they're preaching. But since you are here, okay. um, what I do want to have you share with us is share a little bit about Waterhouse as a church planning network. What is it? Yeah. Um, and then what's the purpose of this particular yeah. network? Well, let me start with how we got it off the ground, then I'll talk about what it is. Uh, if, if five years ago, I was invited to actually possibly be on a board of another network, and we were to meet in Denver. And when I went out to Denver, I met a guy named Tyler Johnson. And uh, we hit it off. Uh, I don't think he or I really felt like that network was for either of us. And so we kind of talked, dreamed a little bit about what a network could look like. At that point, we weren't thinking about starting one. We were just kind of talking about that or what kind of network we'd be a, a part of if we jumped into something. And so I went back to LA because I was in the middle of planting a church in LA and he came back here and uh, we stayed on, you know, we just kept staying in communication, hanging out. And um, we found about a couple years ago, Pastor Rick McKinley of Imago Day, where I happen to work right now, he had hit me up about uh, starting a network. And, uh, and so we said, how can we be a network that ain't about the dumb stuff, right? That how, how can we create a, a tribe without being tribal? And uh, we wanted to be a big K kingdom network where we are including people. 
we wanted to make sure everybody felt like they had a voice, anyone could come and feel like they had a place at the table. And so we wanted to make sure that this thing was truly multicultural, uh, multi-economic as well. And so we, we said, how can we truly create a network that reflects the kingdom of God? And so um, Waterhouse was created. And so our big focus is the kingdom and the gospel and what that looks like in the city. We're a bunch of church leaders that come together, raise funds, and help support guys who are looking to get their church off the ground. We do some leadership development, and we're highly, highly relational. So for, that's pretty much what we are. Okay, I didn't ask you this last hour. Yeah. So being someone who grew up in Inglewood, yep. planted, went to Oregon State. He played basketball at Oregon State a little bit ago. And, <laughs> and planted a church there, went back to L.A., and now you're at a church that's pretty similar to ours, even demographically. Yeah. Tell me the differences of when you plant a church in the inner city as opposed to planting a church in a more artistic, eclectic in, uh, environment. Oh, that's a, boy, that, that, that's a whole sermon. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I think the way you disciple in a church like this is different than how you disciple in the inner city. A lot of things you take for granted here, you can't take for granted in the urban inner city. And when I say urban, it even feels awkward because urban means something different now because of gentrification. But urban used to mean inner city. And so there's a lot of things in terms of, you know, like, like this distinction between charity ministry and dignity ministry. I had to shift from charity, which was doing clothing banks and food banks and missions and that kind of stuff, to dignity stuff, which is going into the inner city and doing stuff like microloans, helping guys create businesses, not assuming that employment was easy for them, and, and really doing that kind of hard in-the-trench work that you didn't have to do when you're out in the suburb. Hmm. So, so that, was, that was different for me, really focusing on that empowerment piece. Uh, on a whole nother level. We're talking about empowerment in the suburb, suburbs, empowerment in the city. It means two different radical things. So, so when it comes to your passions yeah. and your, your, the things you feel like God's placed on you, yeah. how do you see those type of things, empowering the poor, getting rich and poor together to plant churches, how do you see that uh, play out within the network of Waterhouse? Uh, yeah, well, it's how we use power. Like when I, when I talk about, people ask me, how do you do a multicultural church? And I always say, well, you can have a multiracial church where you have different races of people in one building, but that doesn't mean that it's multicultural because multicultural means that you have to give up power. And when you're talking about building a network and you bring an urban, urban suburban and urban inner city together, you're going to have to give up power. And I understand that there's certain things that are unique and distinct in my culture that you can't speak to. There's certain things that are unique to your culture that I can't speak to, but us together can create a whole nother culture. And I think that's what we're trying to do at, uh, with Waterhouse. You almost said Amaga. Oh, Amaga is the church in Portland. Yeah, my bad. You're at Redemption. Redemption my Red bad. Redemption, right? You got to say <laughs> Redemption. <right>? Redemption. <laughs> All right, well, lastly, man, we got this conference coming in town. We're mm -hmm. excited about it this week. Um, Justin Anderson, who started this church, will be preaching here yeah. next week. He'll be a part of it, and people are flying in from Hawaii, from yeah. Utah, um, all over the place. Yeah. What can we be praying for as a church for you guys and for the network and for our time here in Phoenix? We need an infusion of money, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's how you can try No, actually, we're at, we're at a couple of things. One, on, on a, we're asking ourselves, how can we be this national network that really provides support for guys, and yet at the same time, how to maintain those relationships in a healthy way. We don't want to be institutional, we want to be relational. And so we're, we're coming together tomorrow, me, Tyler, and some of the other advisory board members to talk about what does that look like. We've had six months of this kind of conversation. The other thing is, is that we've got a guy getting, uh, a guy that we're planting in Seattle, Tim Gatos, and another guy who's planting just outside of Corvallis in Albany, and these guys are coming up and presenting their vision. They've gone through our residency, and now they're ready to plant. So we need the resources to help them plant and just the infrastructure of where we're going to go relationally as a network. Definitely. So those are areas you can pray for. Good, good. Well, you guys stand as we pray for Eric and for Waterhouse. Yeah. God in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, for the blood of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that changes us, Lord, and transforms us, Lord, in ways, God, that we can't even explain. 
And God, we pray for your anointing this morning upon Eric as he opens up the word and he preaches to us. We pray for his energy and strength um, throughout the week as he leads, Lord, many pastors that are coming in town from different places, Lord, small churches and big churches, from poor communities and rich communities, God. As we come together, Lord, we pray against the enemy. And God, we pray that you would build relationships and we would continue to see the church flourish um, in North America as well as the rest of the world. And God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, yes. that you were able to change, God. You were able to take things and mix it up in our life, God, and, and make us new people. God, I pray that today, Lord, we'll be blessed through the ministry of your word, and you would lead us, Lord, even in a time, Lord, when we remember Christ through the sacraments, God. We pray for our church, and we pray for our city, that many who do not yet know you will come to know you. We pray for our places of work and our neighborhoods and communities, that the gospel power would begin to come to bear and we, would, and we would trust and know that Christ today is reigning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. All right. Let's, get, let's just get right to it. Luke chapter 4, verse uh, 14 through, I think, 28. Luke 4, 14 through 28. Just jump right in. Luke 4, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside, and he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him, and he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up on the Sabbath day, and he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found this place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, today the scripture is being fulfilled in your midst. And all spoke well of him. And were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard you do in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. I assure you that there, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. And when the sky was shut up for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sodom. There were many in Israel in, uh, with leprosy. In the time of Elijah the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Lord, we lift you up this morning, and I just pray you would do what I can't. Um, you would speak to this church in a way that, that uh, would minister and, and uh, dig deep inside of each person's heart in a way that transforms them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, I'm from L.A., like Ricardo said. I'm a diehard Laker. My bad. <laughs> I bleed purple and gold. I can't help it. Um, I'm, I'm about my Lakers, and uh, I'm one of those guys, I'm out myself. I was one of them guys that was hating on LeBron, right? I was, a, I was a hater. I was still trying to hang on to Kobe being the best player in the league and uh, just not convinced that LeBron had enough heart to will his team into winning a championship, and he proved me wrong. And I say, well, that's, that, you know, he did it one year. That's, you know, Jordan's got six, Kobe got five. He got a long way to go. I don't think he's going to get another one. He came back and he proved me wrong again. He got a second one. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to hate on LeBron, but he says something after the second uh, championship, after they just beaten the San Antonio Spurs, that changed my whole attitude of LeBron. And it wasn't anything that you would typically think as, a, as you know, being a fan. But he's getting interviewed after they just beat the San Antonio Spurs. He puts his hat on. He's celebrating. And the uh, person who's interviewing him asks him a question. He says, now, what do you have to say to your fans? Now, this dude has been getting killed for years. You know, this is an opportunity to stick it to the fans. And the first thing he says 
is this. And this is what I came to kind of like him because he said this. He said, you know what, man? He goes, I don't know about any of that. All I know is that I'm a black kid from Akron, Ohio. And when he said that, how do you fight that? Because I can only imagine some black boy in Akron, if you've ever been to Akron, let me tell you, it is, you know, it's not a destination city. <laughs> and if you're a black kid who grows up in the housing projects of Akron, you can only imagine how you felt when, when LeBron stepped up on the biggest stage and gave a shout out to Akron, Ohio. I can only imagine Jesus where the Bible says that, that the only thing that described, that summed up where he was from, was that there was nothing good about it. Jesus came from the other side of the tracks. Jesus came from a place uh, that didn't get much love, much recognition. It was Nazareth. And here's Jesus. He leaves Nazareth, and he's doing all this public ministry, and he gets back to his hometown about the lame walking, the deaf hearing, the poor seeing, the poor, uh, uh, the broken being healed, the lame walking, like I said. And all this news gets back to Nazareth, and they learn that Jesus is now coming back to his own hometown. And you can only imagine the excitement and joy and the exhilaration of this Savior, this Jesus, this messianic hope that would come back to his hometown and preach. You can only imagine how packed the synagogue was going to be. I can only imagine people walking street to street, knocking on doors, telling people, you better get there early. Jesus is coming to town. You can only imagine what was said in the papers about him. Because at this time, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, said that in this area where Jesus was from, these people were well acquainted with religion. And they knew what religion can do to people. They had suffered from what he called narration sickness. And basically, narration sickness is a sort of narrative that people get domesticated into that can be very oppressive. And so in this area, 240 synagogues existed. These people had been used to come to church, and they'd hear the same old, same old every Sunday, or for their case, uh, every Saturday. And basically, a typical service in, in, in a Jewish synagogue usually started with uh, singing from the Psalms. And so they would sing from the Psalms. And then after they would sing from the Psalms, they would read the Shema. And basically, the Shema was from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where they would declare, the Lord thy God is one. And then after they did that, they would do um, the proclamation of blessings. And literally, they would go through at least 18 blessings of proclamation. And then after that, they would read through the Torah. They would read through the Law and the Prophets. And every Sunday after Sunday or every Saturday after Saturday, you got the same old, same old. The song, the Shema, the proclamation of blessing, the law and the prophets every Saturday. You know this. It wasn't nothing new. It was extremely predictable. And then Jesus comes. And he enters the synagogue, and the excitement had to be unbelievable. And as he walks up to, to speak, like most rabbis do, he's handed a scroll and when he gets the scroll and opens the scroll, interesting enough, he reads out of Isaiah 61. And uh, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners. And then he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your midst. You can only imagine that statement today. Finally, that scripture had been fulfilled because for the most part, these people had heard prophecies of the past or, or principles of the future. But for the first time, Jesus took the past and the present and he summed it up, tied it up into himself. And he said, today, this is fulfilled in your life. And that is good exegesis when everything begins and ends with Jesus. Amen? And this is exactly what happens. And that's the uniqueness about Jesus. Because when you go to seminary, seminary teaches you how to teach and they 
they tell you to start with a proposition and you lay out that scripture and then somehow you're supposed to give uh, points to that scripture with some illustrations and then have a closing remark to that uh, passage. And Jesus actually did it quite the opposite. He would take a story that they could relate to in society and then he would show himself in the story. That is the beauty of the gospel, being able to connect all of life back to him. And this is exactly what he does. And he teaches us, them, us, something powerful because everything is summed up right here in verse 19. He says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And so this morning... I want to talk to you about what the favorable year of the Lord is because it's in this that we learn three things about what grace is. Number one, we learn what grace is. Number two, we learn who gets grace and who doesn't get grace. And number three, how to get it, how to get that grace flowing in your veins, how to get it screwed down to the very core of who you are this morning. So those are the three points I want to unpack this morning. What is grace? Jesus said in verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to settle the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what Jesus is actually talking about when he talks about the year of the Lord's favor, what he's actually talking about is the year of Jubilee. Now, it's interesting when God took them, Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and then out of the wilderness, they crossed the Jordan and entered into the promised land. God set up some very unique laws because he wanted to make sure that they wouldn't experience oppression, but he wanted to also set up a system where they wouldn't oppress each other. And so God set up these laws. And they were compassionate laws. And basically what the laws were there for, like I said, was to keep them from destroying themselves. And so one of the laws in Deuteronomy chapter 15 was the debtor-slave law, which basically said every seven years, if you were in debt or if you had to sell, your, sell yourself into slavery to pay off your debt, you were released of that in the seventh year. So every seven years, all debts canceled, all slaves released, it was done. Now, can you imagine if that would work here in America? Wouldn't you like Visa, MasterCard, and American Express to cancel your debt every seven years? Wouldn't that be amazing? And so every seven years, their debt was canceled. But the interesting law superseded that law, which was the law of Jubilee. And basically what that meant was, was that if you own land, which each clan, each family member in Israel owned land, and if you fell on hard times and got into a lot of debt, you could sell the land, but you knew that in 50 years that land would be returned to you. And so, and so God sets up this law that every seven-year cycle, on the 49th, 50th year, the trumpet shall sound, and anyone that lost land would have that land returned to them. Now, why did God do that? Well, one, to keep wealth under check. Nobody could accumulate too much wealth. It was to keep power and wealth in balance. Two, it made sure that the children of the wealthy would have to find their own way rather than rely on the wealth of their parents. So there were no Paris Hiltons. In Israel, you couldn't get rich off of somebody else, right? You had to figure it out on your own. And last, it gave a new start for the poor uh, once every lifetime. It kind of set the reset button on your life where you didn't have to remain in poverty. And so every seven years, debts, all debt, all slaves released. Every 50 years, all land returned. It was God's way of reordering power. So my question to you guys this morning is this. How many of you would like to live in that kind of economic system? I would say turn to your neighbor and talk to him for a minute about it, but I'm not. 
Some of you are looking at me and you're saying, well, that all depends. If I'm a debtor, I love that system. If I'm a lender, I may hate that system. It just depends on which one you are, debtor, lender. Now, why is all this significance? Well, it's significant because Jesus in Isaiah 61 comes and reads this portion at this time because it had literally been 750 years, 750 years since Isaiah had prophesied this. So that means 750 years from the time Isaiah prophesied this to Jesus stepping into the synagogue and reading this, there should have been at least 14 or 15 jubilees that, have, that should have gone off. The trumpet should have sounded at least 14 or 15 times. Now here's the question. How many times do you think that trumpet went off? Now remind you, let me remind you that this economic system was set up because God was supposed to be a distinct people different from the world around them, including how they handled their money, how they treated each other, and how they used their resources. This, if they had honored this, Every 50 years, do you understand the testimony, the witness this would have been to the nations around them? And so for 750 years, 14 or 15 trumpets should have sounded. And you know how many went off? Not one. Not one time did the trumpet sound. You might ask the question, why? Well, you know what happens when you have a little bit of power. It's hard to relinquish that power. When you accrue, when you amass power, it's hard to give up that power. Howard Thurman said in, in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, he said most of the accepted social behaviors and patterns that reinforce inequitable systems assume economic injustice and segregation to be normal. And if it's normal, then correct. If correct, then moral. And if moral, then religious. Religion is thus made a defender and guarantor of these presumptions. And so it makes complete sense. For 750 years, the trumpet had never gone off. That's why God kept sending prophets after prophets to Israel telling them about themselves and not just what they were doing morally but what they were also doing socially and how they were oppressing people and creating systems that didn't reflect God's kingdom but it reflected the kingdoms around them. And so Jesus steps into this scenario and he says today teach you about grace today the trumpet is going to sound what is he saying he's saying I'm going to do for you what you failed to do for each other what Adam forfeited I'm going to regain I'm going to become what you couldn't become I'm going to do what you couldn't do I'm going to be what you couldn't be my friend, that is the heart of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It comes without merit. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. It's God's complete and final work. And God says, today I come to blow the trumpet 750 years. This thing should have blown and it is not blown. I come to set men free. I come to turn the whole social order on its head. Who then gets this grace? Well, before we talk about who gets this grace, let's talk about, first of all, how do you know you don't get grace? Well, let me put it this way. There's two ways that we don't get grace. 
Number one, if, if you look here in verse 22, it said all spoke well of him. And then at the end of verse 28, it says all the people in the synagogues were furious with him. How in the world do you go from everyone speaking well of him and then at the end you're ready to stone him? This tells me something. This tells me that you can get grace and not get the gospel, but you can't get the gospel without getting grace. In other words, you can get aspects of the gospel and completely not understand the full implications of what the gospel is. Because for some people, they either add to the gospel or some other people subtract from the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said cheap grace means the justification of sin without justification of the sinner. It's people that think that grace only means you can do whatever you want and God somehow is going to sign off on your mess. That's subtracting from the gospel because you strip the gospel of its own power to transform you. And then there's those who add to the gospel because they put a prerequisite to the gospel. They can't allow the gospel to stand on its own. They can't believe that it's free. They're always trying to smuggle their work into God's finished work. And the gospel is radical. It's, it's mind-blowing. It transforms the soul. But we try and add to it. And so when you get the gospel, you get grace. But if you get a little bit of grace, it doesn't necessarily mean you get the gospel because you can turn the grace into anything you want to. The second thing is, is this. You don't get the gospel unless it blows you away, unless it strikes and moves you, unless at times it will anger you because of its implications. I remember 14 years ago, I was just starting my first church in Portland. It was in Northeast Portland, and that was like, like historically the most uh, marginalized, disconnected from, from the larger city of Portland in, in that area. And I said, I'm gonna plant a church right there in that neighborhood. And so I moved down on 6th and Chaver, which was Crack Alley, and I started doing work in ministry and planting this church right there in the middle of this community that nobody wanted to plant in. And so I went down there and planted this church. And, um, and I remember right as I was planting the church, two months into the plant, I had one of my best friends who, who had been trying to get the gospel into me, and I, I, I wasn't trying to hear it. I thought he was crazy. But I invited him to come speak one Sunday. And so he came and spoke one Sunday, and I said, would you speak? I tried to control the sermon. I want you to speak on spiritual discipline. There's no way you can swing to the gospel on spiritual discipline, right? So I figured I was safe. And sure enough, what did he do? He spoke on spiritual discipline, <laughs> and he took it back to Jesus. And I remember sitting there in my chair, and I started to bawl because for the first time, first time I started getting the gospel on a level I'd never got it before. I remember I went home at about 2.30 in the morning. I started drawing up all these little diagrams just to help me understand how this stuff all connected. And all of a sudden, it forced me to now look at the Bible different because I started seeing Jesus in every page. I had this experience, like this character in, in, um, in, in, in this, for you older folks, you probably remember this. You remember that movie was called Cross on the Switchblade? How many of you remember that? Some of the older folks. Well, let me just give you a quick overview of the movie. Crossing the Switchblade is about this guy, Nicky Cruz, who was this notorious gang member in Harlem. He was, he was this Puerto Rican gang member. And David Wilkerson, who was this sort of hillbilly Midwestern preacher, decides that God spoke to him to go to New York City and to, to preach to Nicky Cruz. And so he goes to New York City, finds Nicky Cruz, preaches to Nicky Cruz, and Nicky Cruz is not having it. And so Nicky Cruz is terrorizing the streets, and David Wilkerson would knock on his door, would find him on the street, and he'd try and preach to him. And Nicky almost beat him down a few times in the movie. And so one night, Nicky is in battle with, with, a, with a, uh, another rival gang that they're getting ready to get into this huge gang brawl with. And they decide that they're going to meet at David Wilkerson's movie, this movie theater he was holding this big revival meeting at. And Nicky Cruz tells the other gang member, he says, you meet me at David Wilkerson's uh, revival meeting. We'll, we'll throw down right there, right in the middle of the revival meeting. And so both of them fill into the movie theater. <laughs> David Wilkerson's preaching. And uh, the spirit of God moves. Both of these gangs get deeply impacted by the gospel. 
David Wilkerson has an altar call. All of them come up to the altar, and they're all crying, and some of the workers are throwing Bibles out into the crowd. And the interesting piece isn't Nikki, even though Nikki gets saved, but it's really what stood out to me was Nikki's best friend, this guy named Israel. And they throw a Bible to Israel, and Israel grabs the Bible, and he's crying because he's just given his life to Christ. And he's thumbing through the Bible, and he looks up at David Wilkerson, and he says, Preach off! Preach off! He goes, My name is everywhere! It's everywhere! And I cracked up. Because that is how you know you got the gospel. When all of a sudden you open the Bible and you start seeing him everywhere. It's all about him. And until you get to that place, my friend, you don't get the gospel. Until you understand this whole thing is all about Jesus, then you're missing it. gospel is in this illustration that Jesus gives. He tells the two stories of two people to his people, these, Israel, these Jewish folks, and he says, let me tell you what the gospel is, and this is what gets them furious. He says, remember Naaman? Remember the story of Naaman? He said, there were a lot of generals, but God only came to him. Remember the widow in Zarephath? There were plenty of widows, but God only came to this widow in Zarephath through Elijah and Elijah. And then they became furious. Why? Well, the reason they became furious is because, if you remember, Israel were living under oppression. They had lived under the thumb of Rome. They had been taxed down to the ground for them. When Jesus reads Isaiah 61, they speak well of him because they're assuming they're in this narrative. This is who he's talking about, them. And then Jesus says, I'm not come for this self-righteous, religious, moralistic people. I come for people that are foreign from you. And all of a sudden, he talks about Naaman, who's this general, this Gentile general, who's got money and resources, and then he talks about Elijah, this Gentile widow who has nothing. And Jesus said, the gospel is for them. This is who the gospel's for. The implications were economic. The implications were ethnic and racial. And Jesus said, this is who the gospel's for. The gospel is not just for rich people, it's for poor people. It's not for people um, that, that have means, it's for people that are without means. The gospel is upside down. It creates a whole other category and calculus for being. It's upside down. And they were furious because they wanted to determine who gets it and who doesn't. How far down the rabbit hole will the gospel go down in your own life? Is the gospel for your dad that walked out on you? Is the gospel for the uncle that molested you? Is the gospel for the wife that cheated on you? How far down the rabbit hole do we go with this gospel? I'm a black man. And I, my dad walked out when I was seven years old. Started selling drugs. Got hooked on crack, went through rehab four times. I'm in college at Oregon State my sophomore year. I get a call. 
It's my dad. And seeing her from him in years, said, hey, I just went through rehab. I got my six-month chip. I got to make amends. I know I hurt you and your siblings. I want to come up to college, up to your college, and hang out with you for the weekend. And it just so happened, for any of you athletes in here, I'm playing basketball, and that weekend was Father's Day weekend, where you literally bring your father up, bring him to the game, and then you would walk out with your dad at the half-court line. And my dad is now asking me, can I come up this weekend, hang out with you? And he doesn't understand that this is Father's Day weekend. I know the magnitude of what this means. God, whispering in my soul, is saying, how far are you going to go with this? How deep down the rabbit hole will you go with this great stuff, this gospel stuff? This is what God's saying to Israel. The gospel isn't for people that fit into your categories. The gospel isn't for people who deserve it. The gospel isn't for people that you think are respectable enough to fit into your world. The gospel, like I said, is a whole nother calculus for existing. It turns every system upside down, and it forces us to ask harder questions like, who's in your circle? Who's included and who ain't included? Who's a part and who ain't a part? Why do you live in certain neighborhoods and not in other neighborhoods? Why do you go to a particular church and not to the other church? The gospel is called, as Dr. Martin Luther King talked about, this beloved community where we live counterintuitive. It's different than anything that we have ever experienced in our life. And I'm constantly indicting myself, asking those hard questions to myself of who's in and who ain't, who belongs and who doesn't, who's connected and who ain't, who's included and who's not. Am I truly living out of that beloved community? And I believe the only institution that can live in that kind of reality is the gospel. It's the church influenced by the gospel. And so Jesus talks about these two people that are Gentiles and other. And Israel's upset. Well... How do you get this kind of gospel working in your life? Well, it's simple. Verse 18, and I'll close. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. The first thing. He says, the gospel's for the poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. But he says it in the backdrop of Naaman and this widow. One rich, one poor. And so the gospel is neither for the rich or poor, it's for both. It's not the gospel of prosperity where we measure our favor and status before God based upon how swole our bank account is. And the gospel is not poverty theology where we measure our value before God based on the stuff we give up. The gospel isn't just for those that are socioeconomically wealthy and socioeconomically poor. It's for both. But both have to come to Jesus understanding they have, um, they have to come in need. That's what you need is need. All you need is need. The poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed, the one thing they have in common is that they understand that they all have need. That's what the gospel says. It says that there's nothing you can do to get God to love you more. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you less. You just have to accept God's acceptance of you because there's nothing you can bring to him that would make you more righteous before him. 
The gospel is the gospel. And all you can do is come broken at the foot of the cross and understand that you need him. You need his grace. And so three times he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me. He has sent me. And so the source of this grace is coming to him. This is where it all begins. This is where it all ends in Christ. This is where your life is transformed. This is where the gospel becomes real when you understand who Jesus is. And so this morning, my challenge to you, who gets this grace? It's those that understand they need grace. Who gets grace? It's those that come to Jesus and understand there's nothing they can do to get God to love them more or less. God just loves you. He accepts you, period, because of his work. And so let's go to him this morning in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace this morning. We thank you for your work. We thank you for the year of Jubilee. We thank you, God, that the trumpet has sounded, that you've done for us what we could never do in and of ourselves. God, we come to you by grace. We don't trust in ourselves. We trust in you. We thank you that what Adam forfeited, you regained by dying and living in our place. And so today, we ask for those that know you to go deeper into you, to go further down this rabbit hole and understand the true implications of the gospel, that you're always working on our heart, that you're always dealing with issues in our life, that you're always changing and transforming us. And so I ask, God, that you would do a work in this room for those that have been harboring bitterness toward people, toward spouses, toward aunties and uncles and friends and people that have hurt us. We thank you that grace transforms. Thank you that the year of Jubilee cost you something. For us, it was free, but for you, it cost you your life. You gave us what we couldn't earn. And so today, Lord, I just pray for everyone in this room to experience you in a unique way. Amen.